This yeah. is the Author Archive podcast. I've been reading a book by Rebecca Beatty called The Wheel of the Year. And we are talking on the 25th of October. Now, Rebecca, welcome. If, if you have a form to fill in and yes. you have to put religion, what yes. do you fill in? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I... I often say pagan because that's a general umbrella term. Um, it depends on the setting. So if it's if it's um, a setting I feel fairly safe with, I might say Wiccan, which is my my individual path. Um, but generally, I tend to either say pagan or leave it blank. Okay. It, but, one of the interesting things with with this country is that we don't really know exactly how many pagans and Wiccans there are in the country because when it comes to census information people still are quite reserved about revealing what they are but pagan Wiccan um in those organizations which sound to me to be quite loose and amorphous what is yes. your what is your role in that organization so I'm I'm not sure if I'd call Wicca an organization but it's it's definitely a spiritual path. Um, my role is as uh, we would be referred to as a priestess in in that particular setting. So, um, and the I'm part of an initiatory tradition. So we're we're part of I'm part of a coven um, of, of which is a small group of friends who meets regularly. Uh, we've been meeting regularly for about fifteen years now. And we get together for the festivals of the Wheel of the Year and celebrate them together. I'm going to read to you mm. um, from your introduction. Mm -hmm. And the first one, two, three, four, five. First five mm. words. I wasn't born a witch. Yes. Now, that, <laughs> now that's stirring it up a little bit. So mm -hmm. are you a witch, Rebecca? I would... Well, I would have to say, Your Honour, Milud, that yes, I, I do identify as a witch. Um, it's a word that's quite loaded and a lot of people find it quite uncomfortable, particularly if they come from a background of organised religions. So monotheistic organised religions tend to look on us with a bit of suspicion. Um, I'm very happy to say that in my life generally because paganism can tend to be an area where we have a reputation for being quite fluffy a bit strange a bit odd um and i will openly admit to being odd that's that's something i think all of us are odd in our own ways um but i also spend a lot of time in in what i would call the real world in a in a very grounded day job that keeps my feet firmly on the ground okay but i I've told the world we're talking just before Halloween. Yes. Um, in the farm shop just up the road from where I live, <laughs> it's knee deep in pumpkins. Um, yeah. There are, there are witches uh, portrayed everywhere. Mm -hmm. But you now, I mean, I can see you. The audience can't see you, but I can see you. <laughs> you don't, you haven't got a pointed hat on. No. And you, and you, I can't see you wearing a uh, riding a broomstick. So no. where do you sit in in this 
uh, strange world that we now live, this Americanized yes, Halloween. Very Americanized, very Americanized. So with Samhain, it's a it's a really interesting one. Now that you... word, uh, that 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 word Samhain. again, Samhain, and yes. it's pron- and it's written Sam. Samhain, yes, it's yes. written Samhain, but it's an it's a it's Irish in origin. It's a, a festival that came out of the Celtic uh, regions of, of the British Isles. Um, and the reason it's become so Americanized goes back through history. If we think back to the potato famine that happened in Ireland and the Irish diaspora that spread over to America to, um, you know, in search of, of a living, basically, in somewhere that they could live that was... Um, safe and and providing food and shelter, they took sowing with them to America. And in Ireland, the tradition was to carve turnips, not pumpkins, because we don't really have pumpkins traditionally in, in the British Isles. But things got changed and, and adapted while they were in America. And then they've kind of been shipped back to us, slightly commercialised, slightly changed, so we now have this idea of trick or treating, which isn't necessarily, you know, wasn't necessarily done in that way originally. So it's an ancient festival that's born out of Celtic traditions, um, but has, you know, adapted and grown and changed as populations have adapted and grown and changed. You, um, yeah, you now, sorry. you, yeah, you, you take this word witch. And you're not yes. uncomfortable. If I call no. you a witch, that's yeah. all right. <laughs> it's pretty much, yeah. I think it's it's a word that's used um, historically. It's been used and abused over time. You know, it's, it's one of those words, isn't it, that if we think back to the witch trials, that this was a word that was used as an accusatory term, that it was... Um, you know, a, not just an insult, but a very dangerous word to fling around at, at various times in our history. Um, modern pagan witchcraft, as I practice it, which is kind of from the started developing in the late 20th century onwards or mid 20th century onwards, um, kind of takes that word and reclaims it. And and we do identify as witches. Not everybody does who's pagan, but um, and you can be a witch and practice any religion. You don't have to be Wiccan. Um, there are witches in every tradition, you know, but they might not necessarily use that name in the way that I do and feel comfortable with it. But if you accept that term witch, mm-hmm. does this mean you have powers? No more than any of us do. So so this is this is probably one thing where my approach to this might be slightly different than what might be expected from from somebody that's identifying as a witch. I personally feel that we all have powers that we have access to that are stored in our unconscious mind. So when we talk about spell crafting, and that's something that witches are often um, expected to do, I see spell crafting as being very much like goal setting. It's a very similar process. Um, and it, it's about making changes in your life, which is something all of us do. It's about, you know, deciding what you want to achieve in life and going about doing that. We might express it in a slightly different way. 
and I might have um, you know, a range of different ways that I might do that. Um, but in my mind, I, I also trained not just in witchcraft, but in um, NLP and psychology and hypnosis and all sorts of other um, areas as well. And they're often quite interconnected. They're often quite similar. Now, your book is called The Wheel of the Year. And yes. I thought, oh, this must go back to... Oh, the very early times. It must be, you know, two or three thousand years old. And it turns mm. out it was being worked out in 1972. <laughs> now, I mean, quite honestly, Rebecca, I feel cheated. Do you? Yes. <laughs> it's it's one of the one of the realities of of having um or if you think about British history, um, we we had people practicing pagan religions back before the coming of the Roman army who brought in Christianity with them. Um, so we know that we had Druids in, in the British Isles. We know that there were practices going on at Stonehenge, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. What we don't know is that um, with those traditions, they were oral traditions. They were shared orally. So we don't have any written records of, what was happening in ancient history, apart from those that were written down by the Roman armies and the, the Christian monks that were living here um, and observing what was happening. So we don't have an unbroken tradition necessarily in this country. Um, it's something that nobody can seem to agree on at the moment. But if we um, look to the historians for guidance, like Ronald Hutton, um, he talks about the fact that there is no unbroken link and that what was being practiced in ancient times is has become the inspiration for what happens now, but isn't necessarily exactly the same as it was. So our practice now and the Wheel of the Year kind of grew out of people um, being inspired by ancient traditions and wanting to create something that was intrinsically shamanistic but of born of the british kind of okay uh, now you use that word shaman shaman Ooh, yes dodgy now, word. yes i know <laughs> this again reeks of weirdness so yes. as as you say shaman tell me what you think so shame shaman is a term that's often used out of context it's probably quite an iffy choice of words for me to use. Um, so the thinking back to that, that early beginning of the Wheel of the Year, which was sort of from 1950s onwards, probably, um, we've got Gerald Gardner and Ross Nichols, who were, um, Gerald Gardner was the, the father of modern pagan witchcraft, Ross Nicholson was the father of modern pagan druidry. And they were both friends and they both attended ceremonies at, at Stonehenge and, and kind of came up with ideas and shared their ideas about what a calendar of um, nature-based festivals would look like. And that's where we get our, our Wheel of the Year festivals from. Gerald spent a lot of time overseas. He was um, somebody who from a very early age was sent abroad because he, he suffered from severe asthma. And he studied a lot of the different kind of um, indigenous religions that he saw around the world that were shamanistic in approach. So this was about um, 
you know, a very embodied religion. So there's a lot of dance and drumming involved, or there's um, the the idea that you might experience, and again, this comes with a weirdometer check, um, that you might experience altered states of consciousness without using drugs, but just through dance, chanting, movement. Um, and that's what he was trying to evoke really was this idea that we could have something that was very embodied um so it's about physical experience and being in nature and bringing back in ideas of there being the sacred feminine which is kind of absent from our organized religions often not always but often so that's what they were trying to to sort of create and that's that's how we come to be here today really and is your belief system and what you do, is it inherently green? Um, I mean, I I don't like eating strawberries at Christmas Day because it's weird. I, yeah. like, <laughs> I like to eat what nature provides yes. at this time. Now, yeah. is, is that a step towards the way you see the world? Yes, I think so. I think that... Um, so one of one of the things I I have learnt about nature in my um, travels so far, shall we say, um, part of my research was looking at um, uh, for my PhD research. I was working on an author called Mary Webb, who was a nature mystic, who lived in the 1920s, long before modern paganism ever kind of showed its face, um, and she was living out principles that we are quite you know, au fait with today. So she was a vegan. She, um, you know, loved nature, revered nature, found inspiration in it. And her popularity as a writer came about following um, two world wars and a global pandemic, just as, you know, we've just experienced um, COVID pandemic, that in the 1930s and 40s, people started turning back to nature and seeing that there is an alternative um, way of living where you're in harmony with nature and, and following its seasonal patterns and revering it as something sacred doesn't necessarily mean I worship rocks or I'm personally not vegan um, because everybody has to make their own decisions. We all kind of come to this in our own way. So my personal practice is very much based in spending as much time in nature as I can observing what's going on around me, seeing what's seasonal, what isn't. And I think that that's, that's only a positive thing, isn't it, really, to be Yeah, Yes. I mean, I mean, let me just sort of ask you about the, the theistic way that you mm. think. I mean, we now have a prime minister who comes mm -hmm. from a polytheistic tradition. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. tend to think of a religion as having one god, Hindus mm -hmm. have lots of gods. Yes. Um, in your way of thinking, do you have lots of gods or is nature your god? That's a really interesting question. And it's a question that I would probably say evolves over time um, through my various studies. I, I work with many gods. So I work with as in I kind of build relationships with. Um, many different deities from all sorts of different pantheons. And I teach classes on how people do this and, you know, how to work with them. I'm not 
if you were to ask me, is there one God or many, I would go with the model that says our deities tend to reflect what we need as human beings. So I see them as archetypes rather than literal necessarily um, personalities that exist. It's a, it's, it was once described to me as deities a bit like a giant disco ball. You've got you know lots of mirrored faces that are reflecting back what we need to see in that space. So you might find that um, at a particular time in your life, you might work with one particular deity or you might work with many. Um, so I would say I'm somebody that believes in the divine as being a force. I think that it exists in nature. I don't believe it's necessarily um, absent from the world. I think that nature is a um, almost like a, um, a reflector of, of that divine nature. So I see it as a sacred thing, this, this planet that we've been given that we're ripping to shreds and, and you know, damaging in all sorts of ways, um, that we, we have a caretaking role in, in life. And if we can leave the planet in a better state than we arrived in it as, then that's only a good thing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, how does all of this sit with science? Because I've got a major bone to pick with you, which, yeah. I, will, <laughs> which I will bring to you in a moment. Yeah. Um, but uh, how do you view scientific truth in all of this? So I, I always see scientific truth as a movable feast. So if you were to ask... Um, one of our ancient, you know, if we if we go back to the pre-modern period and we talk to a human being living in that, you know, in, in say the 1400s, they would tell you that they were living on a planet Earth where there were seven planetary bodies uh, revolving around us that shone their energies down on the Earth. And, you know, so the, the worldview changes, doesn't it, as, as we understand science our knowledge and our and our understanding of it changes all the time. So we might have thought, you know, 400 years ago, might have believed that we were on an in an Earth-centric universe. We now know different because we now know we're in a solar system that's part of a much bigger universe. And I think our scientific knowledge is constantly evolving, constantly evolving and changing as we discover more. So I think that, in my view, scientific truth is a movable thing because we're always discovering more. And yes. what we think we know now might be changed in future when we learn a bit more. OK, I'm going to bring up my big problem with your book. <laughs> Are you braced for this? I am braced for this. OK, uh, chapter one, Midwinter yes. or Yule. Now, yes. if, if any of my classes when I was teaching in school had written this, they'd have been in detention for quite some time. Um, theme, the shining light in the darkness. Yes. Mm. And do you know what you've written as planet? Do you know what Sun. you've written? Yeah. And repeat after me, Rebecca. <laughs> repeat after me. The sun is, is not a planet. Indeed. So why the <laughs> hell did you say it was? So 
Um, many of our uh, many of the books of magic. This is this is quite a long question, but many of the the books of magic were written. So we, as as modern pagan witches, study something called grimoires, and we know that this is a worldview that's completely obsolete now. Um, you know, we've proved that there is a solar system that that we have Neptune, Uranus, and you know, various other bodies in Mercury, Venus are, you know, yes, Merc- exactly. Have, yes, exactly. But the books of magic were written at a time where um, that that point in history that I mentioned previously, where standing on planet Earth, looking up at the heavens, people saw with the naked eye what they saw. And they believed that there were two luminaries and five planets that they named as the seven planets so our books of magic that we we base all of our kind of understanding of of magic on it's a really strange one this how how we square this and i have a student that that really struggled with this concept as well that that we know that we're using a system that's archaic and old and and isn't scientifically proven what you mean it's wrong it's wrong scientifically but yeah. magic it works and that's the weird thing so we have thought the reason i've said the sun is our planet is because we're referencing that ancient kind of way of seeing the universe where the sun was believed to be a planet we know it's not obviously now uh you know i'm not a flat earther i don't don't (laughs) still live in this universe where um you know it's just the seven planets and nothing else beyond but we're kind of referencing old magic magical systems, and that's where that reference comes from. Is there such a thing as magic? I think there is a lot of things in this world that we don't understand that we use the word magic when we don't understand how it works. So I used to work in IT, and if somebody ever asked me how I'd fixed a computer and made it work again, I didn't necessarily have the scientific language and that framework to explain it properly in a way, in a way that everyone could understand. So I'd often just say, oh, well, it's just magic. So it's it's the word we use when we can't, it's, you know, can't necessarily frame using logical language terms um, what we're doing. The Wheel of the Year is the book, your nurturing guide to discovering nature's yes. seasons and cycles by Rebecca Beatty. Thanks for talking to me, Rebecca. Lovely. Thank you.